Today's book is a book for entrepreneurial women at any stage of life who want to know what it exactly takes to build a business in a world that's not always fair, predictable, or politically correct. It is one woman's story, by no means universal, but common enough to be instructive. It's about how our guest has dealt with the way things are, not the way things she hoped would be. It's about sucking it up. It's about making hard choices and dealing with the consequences. It's a great pleasure to welcome author of Digital Goddess, The Unfiltered Lessons of a Female Entrepreneur, Victoria Montgomery Brown. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You start the book by telling us honesty strengthens relationships, but deceit erodes them. Let's share the car service story and how entrepreneurs should never lie to their investors. So in 2007, we were well underway starting Big Think. We'd begun filming dozens of experts um, and we were planning to launch in January of 2008. And we were told that the New York Times was going to do a big cover story in the business section of Big Think on our launch date. Um, So we actually had to rush to launch because we didn't have the... um, basically relaxed time. We knew that the story was coming out on January 8th and that's when we had to launch. Um, And so in, I think it was November of 2007, I was emerging from Union Square subway station, which is in central Manhattan in New York. And it was the days of the flip phone and I received a call um, on my phone. And typically I don't answer calls from people I don't know or numbers I don't recognize. But something told me to answer it, and I picked it up, and it was a very strong New York accent. Um, And he said, this is Detective Michael Paul. (laughs) You even remember his name. Um, And you need to come down to the precinct, maybe the 50th precinct, some precinct in New York. I can't remember what. And I literally had no idea what the call was about. And my sister lives in New York as well. And I thought, oh, maybe something's happened to her. So I asked him. Um, about that. And he said, no, you need to get into a taxi and basically get your butt here immediately. They're not exactly polite when you're uh, in trouble. And um, I got into a taxi not knowing anything about why I was going there. I remember calling my father from the fo- from the taxi and him saying, get out of the car. What the heck is this about? You have no idea. Do not go. Um, and I ended up at that stage calling my fiance who's a lawyer and he said don't go but some good girl um i don't know driving me forced me to go and i arrived at the precinct and to set the scene i was wearing a gray mini dress and pink high-heeled shoes which was not what somebody should be wearing to a police station um and there the guy was waiting for me he was in plain clothes and there were people in handcuffs and things like that all around the police station um Anyway, it turned out that I was being brought in for theft of car service. And I will tell that story in a moment, but it was a really horrible experience. Don't get arrested in New York City if you can manage it at all. Um, And anyway, I spent the next four to six hours in a room with a one-way mirror being told that a powerful man who I figured out was my former boss had a big issue with me primarily for starting um, a new venture that was slightly competitive with his and had managed to call in a whole host of favors to have me arrested for theft of car service, which I was in fact allowed to use. Um, And this is not a good thing to happen to anybody, but it's especially not good when you're about to launch a business with notable investors. So in that moment, I had a choice. 
or in the following, the, the hours after I was released, had a choice. Do I try to keep this under wraps? It probably wouldn't get out. Or do I take this as an opportunity to be as transparent as I could be? And as much as it was a horrible thing to do, I spent the next four hours calling all of our investors. There were five at the time, one of them being Peter Thiel, who was the first investor in Facebook um, and a major investor, and Larry Summers, who was the former Treasury Secretary, to explain the situation I was in. I didn't know if they were going to walk, basically think that I was a thief or something like that and call back their investment. Um, they knew who had instigated all of this. And so instead of it causing um, them to lose trust in me, it in fact catalyzed more trust in me. And they realized that no matter what happened with the business, even though it hadn't even launched yet, I would deliver the hard truths instantly and as harshly as possible. So what seemed to be a terrible situation actually was very beneficial and taught me the value of transparency um, and how it can actually bring more trust. And I think that that really served me well along the way. And by the way, my criminal defense attorney, yes, I had one, said that I should always say that I was not actually arrested because it was all expunged. So even though I was in the time, there's no record. <laughs> the, the funniest thing I thought about that was firstly, you and, and by the way, I, I fully recognize and acknowledge that it was not funny for you in the time There was a lot of stress on you, you say this in the book. But the going away party. So you left on good terms, or so you thought with this, this uh, gentleman, if you want to call him that, by the way, total narcissist, by the way, which was obvious by your description of him. But what I thought was funny was the other lesson that you must have learned was what are you going to say when a narcissist asked a question such as, so what are you going to miss most about working here? The answer to that, of course, should be you, Mr. Narcissist, you are the center of the universe. But what does Victoria Montgomery Brown say? <laughs> she says the car service. Yes. <laughs> so he should have known. But anyway, it was it was unbelievable. And as I'm sure you read at the end of the book, I had my uh, it came full circle. Um, I met with him two years ago, or 2018. So in 2017, there was the Me Too movement. He was one of the men caught up in that. And I met with him for lunch. I had a bit of a, you know, feeling of sorrow for him thinking, okay, now this guy has got his comeuppance. And we met for lunch. Meanwhile, I was thinking he was going to apologize to me, not in the least. All he did was talk, talk about how he was going to have his great redemption be better than ever, and truly wanted me to know who were the women who had reported him. So that was the, the full circle story with him. So let's go back because that that is a, a core story in in the book. But it surrounds how you got there because your experience in Harvard, etc, the 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 lessons you learned about actually, it did matter what qualifications you had, it mattered what school you went to, despite what people say, these were actually essential in your development. Let's start with how Big Think, the embryonic stages of Big Think and how it happened. So I was working at this television program. And honestly, when I had graduated from Harvard Business School, it was a terrible economic time. So it was 2003. And so while the, the, tech, uh, the tech bust happened in 2001, the kind of ramifications of it really played out a couple of years later. So in my graduating year, people were lucky enough to be going back to the career or even the job that they had 
prior to business school, much less going into different industries. So I had come from kind of the media world. I had been living in Los Angeles working in film and, and thought at some point I'd like to run a studio. That's how sort of idealistic or, I don't know, naive I was. Um, and serving my time there, I realized that is not what I wanted to do. So I went to business school thinking eventually I'd like to be an entrepreneur and maybe get some experience in banking or private equity or venture capital before starting my own venture. I knew I needed some business experience. When I graduated, as I said, it was a terrible economic time. So I think it was 27% of our class, I could be misspeaking, but I think that's around the, the correct number, didn't have a job at graduation, which is unheard of for, for Harvard Business School. I was one of them. And five months in past graduation, $200,000 in debt, I was thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to be a Starbucks barista. Luckily enough, a friend of mine had been working for this man and she really didn't enjoy it. And so she called me and said, I know you don't have a job. Is this something you consider? At that point, I would have taken anything. So I went and, and worked for him. Um, and I really feel it was lucky at the time because if I had gotten a job at Goldman Sachs or something else, I might still be there because of the golden handcuffs. But this propelled me to start Big Think way sooner than I might have. Um, and to, to your question about how important it was to go to Harvard Business School, when I came up with the idea with Peter of Big Think, the network of Harvard is so incredible. Literally just two calls into the network. I had a meeting with a former classmate of mine, David Frankel, who became our lead investor. And I don't know if I had gone to if I hadn't gone to Harvard Business School, if I would have been able to start Big Think, maybe I would have, but the network certainly made it a lot easier. Um, and it, it was fundamental. And the entire creation of Big Think, we've had so many business school professors on, Harvard professors, et cetera, it just lent legitimacy to the entire initiative. And so for me, I will always be eternally grateful to, to where I went to, to business school. One of the things I love about this show, and you would have experienced this as well with Big Think, is supporting themes and topics that don't get enough exposure. And I feel that you've done this with this book. You call out a lot of issues, the realities of being a female entrepreneur and the struggles that you have to go through, particularly being a female entrepreneur. And you share that compartmentalization was an, an, a skill, a leadership skill that you really developed but I wanted to really shine a light on one thing. You say in 2017, just 2.2% of all venture capital in the United States went to companies founded by women. And if you ask female founders about their experience approaching potential funders who are overwhelmingly male, you'll hear stories of bias, sexism, and even worse. So I wanted to really share this because I think this is so essentially important. We have a lot of entrepreneurs and startup founders and VCs who listen to this show. And I'd love to share your experience because you can be damn sure you're not alone. I mean, I have a good friend um, who's also a, a woman entrepreneur. And we've talked a lot about the difficulties we've had in um, raising money. These days, I would say it's it's potentially easier for, for women because the tide has turned and people are seeking female entrepreneurs and CEOs. And, you know, there's a bit of a PC element that I think people should use to their advantage about uh, in it. But years ago, that wasn't the case. Young men, especially Stanford graduates or whatever, could walk into a VC office in a hoodie and be given 
not a standing ovation, but basically be revered before they'd even done anything. And I think women had to walk in the door with a ton more experience, a much more solid idea, and potentially even started the business. And that to me was daunting. And I I write in the book that my business partner, Peter, um, is younger than I am, a male, obviously. And when we would walk into VC meetings, invariably they would look to him to lead the meeting. And I was the one who was going to be leading the meeting. And I think it would be easy to become jaded or whatever, but I kind of used it to my advantage in a way because it was a surprise, you know, it's kind of a bait and switch that was a surprise to them that I found actually kind of exciting to me. And I don't know, I think that the tides have changed a little bit, but I will say that I know an individual who is in his late 20s, who basically just started a business, has no experience, and over $60 million has been thrown at him. I don't know one woman that that has happened to. You talked about getting credibility from early funders, etc. And I'd love to share that part of the story. We had a brilliant guest on the the show before, a guy called Luke Burgess on his book, Wanting. And it's about this power of mimetic behavior. And the way to think about mimeticism is essentially that if you think about a, a room full of toddlers and you introduce a toy and then the alpha child or the minder shows attention to that toy, the children will all show attention to that toy. And that came to mind when I was reading about the funding story because you had to almost play a game like, because the first question was, well, who else is behind you? Who else is backing you? I'd love if you'd share this for our founders and our entrepreneurs out there. Nobody, I think it's a human trait, wants to take be the first into something. Or if they are the first into something, they want to know that there are others that they greatly respect following them. And so for us, it was a little bit of a game of chess and, you know, who goes first type of thing. And so we had garnered interest from a few notable potential investors. And we had to say, go to another person and say, well, this individual is interested. Larry Summers is interested. If he invests, will you invest? And it was literally kind of doing that tightrope walk or whatever to get people. And then it was figuring out who will actually put the, the paper down. And it was our lead investor, David, who had the courage and I maybe the experience to do it. But I don't believe he would have done it if we hadn't circled the wagons and got four other people that he respected to go along with it. And I just think that entrepreneurs who are thinking of starting a business should know that. If you can corral people that the people you want to invest respect, they're far more likely to do it. Nobody wants to be alone. I mean, I don't know that I would invest alone. I'd like to know that there are others doing it as well. So that's what we did. It took a matter of months and it was not easy, I will say, because people, it is like herding cats. And um, in the final weeks leading up to it, I was literally going on knocking on these people's doors to have them send in their papers and stuff like that. And that's what it takes, especially if you're a newbie as I was. You just made it. It was like a Cinderella moment by midnight. You had to get the papers in. I actually didn't know about that process. I thought that would be helpful to share this about the papers all have to be in by a certain date. Otherwise, you have to go through the whole process again. And that would have cost you a lot in legal fees. In most situations, I'm not an entire expert, but in I would say in most funding um, timelines or whatever, there's a closing date. And all of the papers have to be in and signed and the money has to be wired by that date. And if not, you have to start over. And so it was the day of the close and one of our investors 
what could not be tracked down. And it was very daunting because it had taken us months and months to get there. And who knows if it didn't close that day, maybe it wouldn't close at all. People could get gold, cold feet. So myself and my business partner were nonstop calling him, showing up to his house, et cetera. And eventually it did end up closing, but what is it? I'm, I'm going to say a, an inappropriate thing, but what is that line? It's not over till the fat lady sings or something like that, but it's true. You know, anything can derail it up till the very last moment. One of the things you discovered as well was during that process of looking for funders was there was a lot of parasites out there. And I loved what you said. You said charlatans are like poisonous mosquitoes dressed as butterflies. And this this really spoke to me because I've met people like this, parasites, narcissists, whatever you want to call them, but they're out there looking for vulnerabilities. And when you're in those early stages as an entrepreneur, you're often extremely vulnerable and you experienced this as well. So we had a fellow early on um, when we were just starting Big Think, didn't have funding or anything, but we were well underway. We had potential investors and we were introduced to him as a potential investor. And Peter and I went to his office a bunch of times. He wasn't really helping that much, not introducing us to a lot of people. And all of a sudden in one of our meetings, he started to refer to Big Think as we and, you know, the, him being the third founder and things like that. And I was totally caught aback, but I was sort of polite in the moment. And when we left, I said to Peter, this is completely not cool. We have to do something about it. And he's um, new, to the, new to the business world, as I was as well, but I at least had, was older and had more work experience. And we kind of allowed it to persist, I think, a little bit too long. And I remember as we were about to be funded, saying to him, we cannot have this guy along for the ride. He has contributed nothing. He's basically just using us to be get a third uh, of this company for no contribution. And so we went to um, a club that he was a member of, Soho House, which is now international. And in late 2006, I think early 2007. And I was determined we were not leaving there without saying that we were not going to have him as a partner. And so we were sitting at a table ordering drinks and this is where kind of, I think the role definition between Peter and I became pretty crystal clear. He's a pleaser. He's very charming. And I, I like to think I am in certain instances too, but I'm extremely blunt. And my biggest fear is I think not being clear and leaving, I don't know, evasion or whatever on the table. And so it was coming towards, I guess, about an hour into the, into the drink. And I basically just said to this guy, you know, we're going to have to forge ahead without you. Um, we appreciate your contributions, but there are two founders of Big Think, and it's Peter and I. He went ballistic. Peter was apologizing, trying to take it back. No, it's okay. It's okay. And I was like, nope, that's it. It's just the two of us. And he got up. We were in his, his club. Uh, he got up and walked out. And we've run into him over the years. He really doesn't like us. But I've heard that he's done it to other people, too. And it's a re really, I don't know, it's a slimy tactic, but one that has worked over and over again for him and for a lot of other people like him. It's a funny one. It reminded me of an incident that happened to me with this show. So like you there, somebody early on, an, an entrepreneur tried to, he, he wanted to own half the, the show <laughs> and he'd find sponsors and he'd scale the show, et cetera, et cetera. Sent me papers and everything. I met him, lovely guy, you know, on the front, uh, looked like a butterfly. 
And then uh, the next thing was like, let's write a book together. This was going back five years ago or so ago. And he's like, I'll, I'll pay for all the research for this book that we'll write on innovation. And then he sent me the research, but he had failed to fix the file name. And it came from Fiverr.com, you know, Fiverr.com, the, the freelance thing. So it literally cost the guy $5. So I asked him, I said, where, where'd you get all the research done? And he's like, oh, some real hot shots over in the States. And I was so lucky. It was a warning shot across my bow to go, Aiden, don't be such a numbskull. Do your research. And I started doing my research. Then he had no PR company behind him. He was actually outsourcing again, all this kind of stuff. So like that experience, there's loads of them out there. And I thought it was really important to shine a light on that. But the other type of funder you mentioned, and you mentioned as well, how you're a straight talker, you hold no punches on this was your experience of VCs. You know, our business had huge ups and downs, a lot of startups do. Um, and I'll tell you what ultimately happened. We did we did ex exit at the end of last year, which was great. Um, but we've needed rounds of funding. And typically, we've had ex exceptional individuals who've invested, but periodically, we've gone to VCs to seek funding. And I will say, I'm sure there are some wonderful VCs out there. I have not experienced them personally, although I have some friends who are great individuals who are VCs, but my experience and Peter's experience has been, I don't know, jarring and kind of rude, I would say. You know, we did build, we did actually build a business. It does have millions and millions of viewers. Loads of the world's top experts, including Elon Musk, has participated. That has to be valuable for something. But we would go into these VC offices and they would look at us like total losers, I think because we weren't the new new, we weren't somebody with a clean slate walking in with just an idea. We actually had built something. And I remember our last interaction with the VC was in San Francisco a few years ago. We had um, flown all night to get there. We walked into this um, meeting and the guy was so dismissive. And he said to both Peter and I, you guys look tired. And it was really, you know, basically took the wind out of our sails and we both kind of were like, you know, slumped down a little bit. And he talked to us about how, you know, our business was, we were kind of, he didn't say losers, but it was like, we were sort of pathetic and nobody was going to be interested in it. And I don't know if it was a tactic to try and get a really lowball investment um, number or something like that, but we emerged so browbeaten and we then vowed after an hour or so, like we are never going to work with an individual like that again. And if we're going to walk into a meeting and be literally put down, we should get up and walk out. It was our mistake to have sat there and taken it for a full hour. It was embarrassing to us. And I think he should have been ashamed of himself, ashamed of himself. But we've had that experience with VCs over and over. And I hope the, I hope the industry is changing. I've seen that before myself. I've witnessed it where it's almost like make the first person feel broken and that you are the light you're you'll bring them out of the darkness out of the chaos and you'll help them and therefore you're the you're the master with all the the answers and and I, I it's actually a disgusting thing to do again driven by narcissism you you know always always has been a man and a narcissist at that as well that I've seen doing that and it's it's horrible to witness as well so I really wanted to mention it but one of the other things and this is really important is you you said the oft heard line told in various different ways is that VCs want their entrepreneurs to be hungry. So they always want them like starving for, you know, action and for success, because it makes them desperate to achieve. 
But that is extremely unhealthy. And you experienced this firsthand. I think it is unhealthy um, because, you know, if you're not an ethical person to begin with, it can drive people to do really unethical things. And um, I don't know, I, I mention a lot in the book, the story of uh, Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos. I don't think that she was driven to be hungry, but she definitely had the notion that she couldn't not succeed. Um, and she'd been given or a bunch of VCs had invested a ton of money with it with her. And so she did anything that she could to get a win. And I think that that mindset that VCs instill in people potentially is really, really dangerous. I don't think you want your, um, your portfolio companies or the leaders of your portfolio companies to feel that hungry and desperate. You want them to do the right thing. Yes. You want them to be ambitious and do whatever it takes ethically to be successful, but not start doing things that aren't ethical um, because they're so desperate and hungry. So if I were an investor in a company, I would want to make sure that the founders, the CEO, and all of the people in the organization are compensated well enough that they're comfortable. I mean, they're not living a lavish lifestyle, but they're not desperate to either have to get another job or start cutting corners. On the flip side, then as well, you say you should be hungry as an entrepreneur, as a as a founder, you have to be and you have to wear whatever hat that needs to be worn. And because I say that because sometimes you see some founders who think that work is beneath them, and they won't do that work. But you certainly didn't have that as your Michael Porter story shows. I'd love if you'd share this. This was our first on location shoot. So we hadn't yet, we didn't yet have a studio in New York. So we were going to where the expert was. So we went to Cambridge to Harvard Business School to film Michael Porter, Clayton Christensen, and a few others. Um, Michael Porter was the first interview of that day. So we were setting up, we had myself, Peter, Eddie Vidalis, and this um, other fellow, Manny Kibowitz. And we were all set up kind of relaxing. I was going to be the interviewer as well as the makeup artist uh, because we didn't have the means to hire one. Um, and so about five minutes before Michael was to arrive, one of our producers was testing the mic um, and realized that there wasn't a battery in it. Back then, this was very complicated to me anyway. Equipment, you know, it wasn't like an iPhone. There were, there were three cameras, lights, etc. And so I, having uh, known and been lived in Cambridge, knew that there was a staple store nearby over the bridge. I was wearing high-heeled boots. It was a very hot day. And I took it upon myself to race out of um, the building and across the bridge and into Staples to get this battery, ran back. And at this stage, I was totally sweating like crazy um, on top of Michael Porter. And meanwhile, <laughs> I had to take out my makeup kit and start powdering him as sweat is pouring down him. And then as I said to him, okay, Michael, we're really excited. I'm the makeup artist, but I'm also going to head into the other chair now and start to interview you. Um, and I think he was a bit taken aback, but yes, as an entrepreneur, especially of a small startup, you basically have to be willing to do anything and kind of do it with a sense of fun and joy. You know, that's the way to, to make things pleasant, even in the trying times. I was laughing. I was I pictured you like uh, he's reading the newspaper, you know, the New York Times or something. And you're and you're you're dropping sweat down on him. He's like, oh, no. what is that? You're like, oh, I'm just spritzing you, Mr. Porter. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that we we know is so effective 
is the idea of coaches, mentors and advisors. Everybody knows this, but very few of us actually reach out and find them. And throughout the book, you mentioned the importance of this. This was ultra important for you. In personal issues as well, you had great advice and great mentorship. I have been so fortunate um, in building the business of Big Think, which is obviously about helping people get smarter faster. We've met so many incredible people who have taught us so many things. And um, one of our first investors in the first round was, was Larry Summers, who I mentioned was head, the head of Harvard and former treasury secretary and then chief White House economist. Never in my wildest dreams would I have imagined that this incredible human would become a mentor of mine, but he did. And he is a person who also pulls no punches and wants the bad news de delivered swiftly and as negatively as possible. Um, and over the years, having had conversations with him about how the business is going and seeking more funding, et cetera, I've had those difficult conversations with him. And we became friends and I would go to him for advice um, along the way. And one such instance, we, we hosted, I think it was in 2014 or maybe 2013, an investor lunch for, for Big Think investors to help us figure out the direction that Big Think could be going to be growing quick, more quickly, revenue-wise, audience-wise, et cetera. And so I had told him that that was the purpose of this lunch. All of them flew in. We had a, a lunch at this restaurant in New York. And I, was supposed, as the CEO, was supposed to stand up and give a welcome talk. And for some reason that day, I was having self-talk in my head about how, you know, what an idiot I was and how incapable, un incapable and things like that. And I was at the head of the table. It was a large room with entirely men except for one other women, woman around it. And I had planned what I was going to say. I started to feel extremely nervous, um, short of breath, and I couldn't even stand up because I thought I might faint or something like that. And so I said something to the effect of welcome everybody to the lunch. And then I turned to our COO and said, take it away, Neil. And he was looking at me like, oh my God. But he managed to pull it together. I was super ashamed of myself. The lunch did not go well. Um, I was supposed to be moderating a discussion. I basically sat silent for the entire lunch um, and embarrassed myself. And I knew Larry was you know, not terribly impressed with this. He was such a giving person that he kind of took over the conversation and said something like um, content is queen, you know, in deference to me versus content is king. And he managed to basically run, run the lunch. And I was expecting some blowback. Uh, I thought it might come right after the lunch, but it was about two weeks later, he called me to discuss what had happened and essentially told me rightly so that I had embarrassed myself, which I had. Um, and those are the type of individuals that, you want it's tough in the moment but as mentors they're going to call you out and help you coach you to be better and tell you where you can be better um yes people and people who compliment you you can leave that to your family and friends if you're really asking for help you want the people who are going to deliver you the hard truths and and help you require you to be better if they're going to continue to be in your life you talk a lot about resilience as well we might come to that later on towards the end of our chat today but one of the things I thought was so essential was when most people who are not entrepreneurs think about entrepreneurs or founders, 
they think often about the the funding rounds, you know, the opportunities to be at events and flaunt their goods or whatever it might be. But there's lots of hats like we just mentioned there. One of those hats is hiring and firing. And it's often overlooked because when you can almost prepare for these eventualities where you're going to have to let go of some people, it's not going to work out. It can be really helpful. And you have lots of advice to share here. Well, I think the old adage is true that I didn't follow until I believe way too late in the journey of Big Think, which is hire slowly, fire quickly. We kept on, or I kept on, so many people that were wonderful individuals, but were just not a fit for the organization far too long. And one person can truly ruin the culture of an organization, the mission, the direction, the productivity, um, because people around them can see that they're not pulling their weight or not contributing enough, and it's demoralizing. You know, if they're getting away with this, why am I working so hard? Um, and so I feel like I let a lot of individuals like that stay on. And maybe they maybe they were great people and would have been great in a different environment, but certainly not in big think. Um, one such instance was one of the first individuals we hired, totally incredible uh, incredible human, I would say, very, very bright. She's now successful in a totally different, well, not totally different, but another field. She had, I think, the queen bee syndrome, which I didn't know when we hired her, which is some women do not appreciate other women being in charge. I don't understand it, but it's a real phenomenon. So my business partner found her and suggested that we hire her. This is before Big Think had launched, and I begrudgingly um, hired her. We had, I went and met with her for a coffee um, and I, I just got a really bad feeling that she and I would not get along and I should have stuck to my guns and basically refused because, you know, the, the job that we all have is, is encompassing and we spend many hours a day with the individuals we're, we're working with and you try to, it's important to try and make that as pleasant as possible because you'll do better but it's also a fundamental part of each of our lives. It didn't go well. It turned out that she was sending emails to other members of our team about me. One of the words, it was a, a pretty, she's a phenomenal writer. So one of the terms she called me was a li liquid nitrogen, and I won't say the word, but it's a bad word. So it was a wonderful term. Um, and somebody else in the company told me about it. And so I first complimented her in my head about her incredible writing. Um, and then we determined we had to get rid of her. She should have been gotten rid of, you know, two weeks in because she was a real problem in the organization. So Peter was given the task of letting her go. You never know how people are going to behave. Typically you hope they behave professionally, but she did not. She went and hid in the closet and started calling <laughs> the other members of the team. I was not in the office, thank God. But yes, it's that was an example of somebody toxic being allowed to stay in the organization way too long. And I likely should have learned that lesson and kept, you know, to a different behavior from then on, but I didn't. Over the years, that happened again and again, not to that same extent. Now, I think I really have come to the realization that as soon as there's a feeling um, that occurs at least twice, it's important to let that person go for their own sake, as well as the organizations. And so... That was one example. I'm, a, I'm a such a huge believer in the, the law of vibration. You know, it's part of the whole idea of the secret, the law of vibration, where you give out energy and you actually can connect with people on an energetic level. And, you know, we, we use language like that. I love the vibe in that coffee shop, that type of thing. And 
this really came to mind here because we all have had those feelings about people. And anytime if I reflect back on my past, when I've ignored that feeling, it's always come back and bit me in the ass always every single time because it's almost like the universe going, Aiden, I told you, you didn't listen. And you know, it's it's a really good way to think about it is that uh, thoughts are the language of the body or feelings are the language of the body and, and words or thoughts are the language of the mind. So they don't speak the same language. So they can't communicate with each other. But I say all that to say, you experience this again, and this time you acted. And the important thing here was you say we must be aware of confirmation bias when we're hiring. And then the sunk cost fallacy when we're firing, because this is what you experience with your Roger story. Uh, he was our COO. And, you know, I really believe that he is a, a wonderful and smart person. But I truly wanted him to succeed. And so whenever I saw him doing something, I convinced myself that it was what he should be doing and that anything that I thought he was doing incorrectly was my own illusion. And the point of basically getting too wed to somebody is totally wrong. Um, and that's the sunk cost fallacy. I've invested so much in this person. Um, I need to invest more versus, okay, you've invested in this person. They haven't proven themselves. It's time to let them go. It's the same notion of throwing good money after bad. Don't invest more when something is going badly in the hopes that you're going to turn them ar around. Just stop. And I've done that over and over again. I hope I won't do it again. But, oh, well, this person has been with us so long. Let's just give them one more shot. It's like, nope, they've been with us so long. They haven't performed. Let them go. And with Roger, that's exactly what I did. I should have let him go a year earlier than he was let go. One of the great entrepreneurs I've studied, I, I, I write about him in my book, a whole chapter on is Walt Disney. And he is a, a master of transitioning. He wore multiple hats like you did, but he transitioned throughout the different roles that are required as the business grows and the business scales. And he struggled with this. And you called this out that there's an identity crisis of sorts when you actually transition from a very small team to a bigger team. And you have to actually transition to becoming the boss, the leader, which is a totally different role than the founder. But you say for a female entrepreneur, it's a different B word that's often used when you're the boss. You know, it's, I wouldn't say it's the majority of cases, but I think a minority of individuals, as I mentioned at the start, are not fond of being led by a woman. I think that's changing. I hope it's changing. Um, and I do think that a different way of behaving with the people you're working with is necessary as a woman. I know that the command and control type of leadership is what I thought initially was required of me. I had to be kind of like an army sergeant, telling people what to do, show no weakness, and that that would, is what would get respect from them and deliver results. That is not the case. It actually just caused people to resent me and probably dislike me um, for no reason, because I am the person I am, and I didn't need to be a different person at the office than I am at home. I mean, obviously, there are professional boundaries, etc. But being your authentic self or my authentic self in the workplace, I think has proven far more effective. And being called a bitch, I think is unnecessary. I didn't have to behave the way that I did initially to get the results that I was seeking. In fact, the more soft I was, I mean, I guess firm, but soft, 
yielded far more results and a much more pleasant work environment for me and anybody I was working with. And it took me a long time to get there. But I would say um, that, yeah, the army is, is to be for the army. It's not a good place um, for work, and a good, not a good way to behave at work. So let's build on that then. So you're, you're building a team, you then have to shift a different hat from going out and finding both funders, for example, for you, but also advertisers, when it was your business model as well for Big Think. And then you're so busy that you barely have time then to think about the th team, the vision, articulating the vision to the team itself, and so many organizations out there, I, I actually work a lot with organizations on their vision and their mission statement, have none is one, but when they have one, it could be ultra clear at the executive suite, but it doesn't transmit across the organization. And many leaders think they're saying it ad nauseum, but they're not at all. And they need to be saying it ad nauseum, they need to be the chief storyteller within the organization. And you experienced this as well. Any leader does need to be the chief storyteller. And I can give some examples of when I was not. And basically the here and now, the next sale, which might have derailed our mission, was more important. Um, and it should never be more important. If you go out of business because um, of some, you're not kind of focused on your mission, I think that's a real, real problem. Um, and for us, I certainly went after sales that I should not have to try and keep the company afloat. And ultimately, they ended up derailing the business. Um, so it was a million dollars in the door at the expense of $10 million down the road um, or at the expense of what the entire mission of the organization was. Um, and I did that repeatedly. And I can also say, I guess, proudly that there were times that I didn't do that. So one of the uh, our first potential sponsors was Dow Chemicals. And this was not kind of mission aligned with what Big Think was, but we desperately needed the money. And what they wanted to do was put the faces of some of our experts into the periodic table. Uh, I don't imagine Elon Musk would have liked to be, you know, hydrogen or something like that. So um, it was really tempting because they wanted to give us or, in, you know, uh, sponsor us for a lot of money. And we needed it at the time. But I ultimately said, you know, if this forces us to go out of business, not taking the money, we're going to do that because this is not in line with our mission. This is not what our experts would approve. And ultimately, it was it was painful at the moment. We had to tread water, cut some people, etc. But we bounced back. And I believe if we had taken that money, we probably would have been driven out of business. It was a great story because it showed even from one of your colleagues perspective, in his eyes, he was doing the right thing. But you hadn't been ultra clear on that. And this often, it often arises in so many organizations. And then there's a sense of unfairness. And then that person downs tools, or they become less motivated, less engaged, and they leave and you're going to go wonder why. But I, I thought and you did a great job of calling that out. I appreciated one point you specifically call out because you say on the whole, your encounters with powerful men in business and beyond have been free of bad behavior. Men, by and large, are good people. They're getting a lot of crap these days on mass because of behavior of a select few. And this goes probably maybe for the VCs as well, that those experiences are not always the case. Let's hope. But I agree with what you say here. You say often the language and behavior of older men is out of sync with the way society operates today. I've seen this myself. And they're operating within the paradigm in which they grew up in. 
And this is not, as you say as well, not excusing them, but I thought that was a valuable point to point out because it gives you some bit of empathy. I think so. I mean, my dad, um, well, I mean, he passed away recently, but he was in his 80s. He's, I think I was very beneficial to have a father like him who was somewhat vulgar in the way that he spoke, but he didn't mean it in a bad way. And, you know, might call women honey and darling and things like that. I don't take offense to that at all. Um, and I just think women who do are sort of thin-skinned and like get positive. They're not being in any way appropriate. They have a term of endearment to, towards you. Just let it go. I think focusing on that is just a mistake. Focus on what you're trying to achieve. Um, and if they call you honey and give you a million dollars, thumbs up. I mean, that's, it's, you know, if they're investing in you, just let, just let it go. And I've had so many men over the course of my career who call me terms of endearment. I don't even think twice about it. If they're going to harass me, that's one thing, but it's just not a big deal to me. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's worth calling that out as well. I think you can be, you can focus on the wrong things sometimes. And, and, you know, as you say in the book, I, I'm a huge believer as well as give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, and as you say, if it happens multiple times, then, you know, pay attention. But moving on to the myth of work-life balance as an entrepreneur. You quote Ev Williams, the co-founder and former CEO of Twitter, and he once said that, take care of yourself when you don't sleep, eat crap, don't exercise, and are living off adrenaline for too long, your performance suffers, your decisions suffer, your companies suffer. Love those close to you. Failure of your company is not failure in life. Failure in your relationship is and you say, God, I know this to be true, because you experienced unbelievable hardships in your personal life, trying to balance the business. It comes across like it was an obsession for you, which is absolutely understandable. I suffer that myself sometimes as well, even with the show, even with some of my roles, I'm thinking about them quite a lot. And oftentimes you're doing them for a reason, which may be a happier life or, you know, give my kids a better life, etc. And then you go, actually, I'm doing this at the expense of them, the very thing I want most. I thought your points on this were so valuable. Thank you. Yes. I, um, at the start of, of Big Think, was engaged. And I mean, I'm still very good friends with um, my ex-husband, who, by the way, is from Ireland and went to UCD. Uh, he is a lovely person. Um, but, you know, we, uh, at the start of it, I felt like I had to focus almost all of my energy on Big Think to the detriment of our relationship. And I remember we were going to Thailand, this is before we were engaged, right after I had been um, arrested. And I was <laughs> completely obsessed with both Big Think and the arrest. And I'm amazed that he stayed with me as long as he did because I was super unpleasant to be around. If all you can think about is work, that's not a meaningful life. Um, and as you say with your own family, you're, you're taking away from them. So that relationship was short-lived. We did get married, but I didn't even have a wedding because I thought it would take time away from the business, etc. So we eloped, much to the great disappointment of my parents um, and my siblings. Um, it was not the right way to go about things. Work is not everything. And yeah, I hope I've changed, but it came at a great cost of a wonderful relationship and an extraordinary human. Um, so yes, I had no work-life balance, and I don't think I did for the first 10 years of Big Think. So it took me a very long time to, to get there. 
And the other relationship you talk about then is apart from your own personal relationships, is if there's a co-founder, and oftentimes that's a much more pronounced relationship, if you want to call it that, because you spend so much time with that person, you go through so much battles and obstacles with that person that it binds you together. And you say this is a marriage of sorts as well. And how you keep that marriage is depends on so many things, but you give some advice for those people out there who are co-founders. I will say that the closest relationship I've had over the last 15 years is with Peter because he worked with me. His first job was working with me. I hired him um, as an undergraduate. So uh, he's on to other th- other things now, but um, I think it must have been a big shock for him to, to not be working with me. Um, so every day for 14 years, for big, at Big Think, we were literally on top of each other, beside each other, um, going through the same ups and downs. And it can be, you know, wonderful and at the same time, very toxic if you enable people's behavior. And so early on in the start of Big Think, Peter is, Peter is openly gay and in a relationship, etc. Um, he uh, had been involved in some, you know, not great uh, behavior and ended up getting HIV early on. And this was devastating news to him and to me. And we had to get through it together. Um, And so that type of relationship is, in fact, more like a marriage in a way, because our lives were dependent upon each other. Um, And figuring out how we would deal with that, especially how he would deal with that, um, was, was critical. And then a few years later, he became addicted to crystal meth. And this is something that I learned the hard way. Um, basically, I was, I think, an enabler. What do they call it? A, a codependent relationship. And I turned blinders to him. I could tell that he was coming into the office and was not well, clearly high, um, etc. The other people in the office knew it too and were looking to me. I'm sure, like, what the hell are you doing? You should be doing something about this and you're not. Um, And it came to a head uh, the night before an event when he would disappear for periods of time and then come in full force, you know, for 15 hours straight, um, completely, I guess, uh, jacked up on on the drug um, and get aggressive, which is one of the side effects of crystal meth. And we had put this whole event together and the night before he decided to get super involved and started emailing people and calling people you know, late at night. And they, the people threatened to not show up the next day, my, my colleagues. Um, and I still didn't do anything about it, which was totally wrong. I was kind of figured, okay, I've got to deal with this after this event. Um, and I ended up doing so, but too late. You know, it was, it was a big problem for the staff I could have helped him earlier on. He ended up, I ended up having to remove him temporarily from the company. So he went and got help and came back stronger than ever. But if I had done it maybe six months or a year earlier, he would have been far better off. The company would have been better off. Our relationship would have been better. Um, Everything is wonderful now. And he came back, as I said, better than ever. But I think sometimes um, partnership in business can become codependent where you're actually enabling the other person's bad behavior. And he for sure did that with me as well. Um, and I can give an example there. You know, I'm a person who suffers from extreme anxiety and I think that he would enable that in me um, until finally he could have no more of it. 
and basically told me I needed to go and seek help, which I did because I was in constant doomsday scenario, you know, um, not what could possibly go right, but what could possibly go wrong and living my life as though everything was going to come crashing around us. And he finally said to me one day, if this is all going to basically come to a terrible end, why are we even doing this? So yeah, I think partnerships can be wonderful and ours is wonderful, but can also have some setbacks that need to be addressed. What that showed me as well is that the compassion you showed him and the way back that you enabled for him came back to pay you back then when you actually went through your own struggles as well, that 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 was paid back to you, that act of kindness came back just like the law of vibration, just like, you know, I often I was telling my son about this. And he came up with this term because he he at the time he was mad into Batman. And he said, Oh, well, the law of attraction or the law of vibrations like echolocation with bats, you send out the vibration and it comes back to you exactly the same way. And I was like, you got a kid. And I thought about that when when you mentioned that experience with Peter. But I, another thing, which is so important, and I know some of the listeners of this show, they email me sometimes and, and I know some of them personally. And some are in jobs that they just hate. You mentioned golden handcuffs earlier on. And I know how difficult it is. You have mortgages, you have dependents, you have the golden handcuffs, you're actually getting well paid. But sometimes people absolutely hate the job they do. And it's one of the biggest curses. We had the amazing founder of Visa on the show before, Victoria, a guy called D. Hawk, amazing man, now 94. And he said, it's one of the biggest curses in life to be good at something you hate doing. And you say the average person spends 90,000 hours at work over the course of a lifetime. That's approximately one third of the precious time we have on earth. So if you are miserable, it's going to impact your mental health and your physical health. And you offer some suggestions on this. I think that, I mean, mental health is a, is a huge issue for a lot of people, whether it be about their professional circumstance or not. But it's, it's easy for me to say who doesn't have dependence or whatever to leave your job if you hate it. But there is always some option for you to do that. And I think determining that this is how your life must be for the rest of your life, it's just kind of a recipe for total, I don't know, depression and also and giving up. Um, if one third of your life is work, try and make it as joyful as possible. And if it's really unpleasant, I mean, I went through experiences at Big Think where I was miserable and felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. I may not have had personal dependence, but I certainly had employees who were dependent on their jobs or whatever. And I felt like it was my responsibility to make, make sure that they were taken care of, but not thinking about my own mental health. Um, and it was, I guess, in 2017 or 2018, I literally had my first ever panic attack. And um, I was at lunch with the head of innovation from Pfizer. And I remember basically not being able to hear what he was saying, because I was convinced I was going to pass out or something like that. I thought I was having a stroke. Um, so I ended up managed to get to the door, get into a taxi and go to Mount Sinai, um, and get and get help there. But I had waited way, way too long. And if I had died, what good would that have served the company at all? None. You know, I managed to think that I was central to everything, which is just not the case. Big thing would have been fine without me gone on. Um, 
none of us are central to anything. And what matters most is our mental well-being and health and taking care of those around us, which first and foremost means taking care of ourselves. So I learned that the hard way. Um, and hopefully I won't do, hopefully I won't do that again. I think we all learn that way. And you realize it really, none of it really matters. Actually, none of it, none of it matters at the end of the day. And we all learn that sometimes too late, but hopefully our intervention example, exemplars like you, leaders like you pointing these things out are so important in life. One of the th ways I thought we'd finish was you mentioned earlier on the incident about getting arrested. And that obviously preoccupied your thoughts. It at the time felt like it was ruining your life, I'm sure. It definitely gave you sleepless nights for an anxious person already. That was going to be really, really difficult for you. But there's a really important aspect. And um, I know, thank you, by the way, I know you bought a copy of my book. I don't know if you got to the last chapter, but the last chapter, I talk about this because I, I had a similar experience and I found writing the book transformational. But I mentioned this old saying that it's not a snake bite that kills you. It's not removing the poison. And what you say is that we need to shift from fear to forgiveness. And this was your instance of closure, because you opened the book with that story of getting arrested and the anger and the rancor and the aggression and rage you would have had against that man. But as you mentioned earlier on, you closed that chapter of the book and you almost closed that aspect and you removed the poison. I did. You know, I was so afraid of this individual. He was a high powered person in New York who had kind of the uh, leadership of the city at his fingertips. Um, and I would say that it caused me severe trauma, you know, throughout the last, well, from, from the time of the arrest for, for years onwards, I was traumatized by this, um, second guess myself, etc. And I realized um, when, I, when I had that lunch with him a few years ago, this is just a human to have empathy for him. I don't appreciate what he did with to me at all. But he has a beating heart and, you know, it's not going to it's not going to help me to continue to be angry and resentful of him. It is, as you say, removing the poison is for letting it go, forgiving and moving on. Um, and I think if I hadn't done that, I would still have these feelings of anxiety around the situation, even though it was 15 years ago now. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're right. Removing the poison is is critical. I have I have a, a a quote I pulled. There were so many, but I pulled a beautiful quote that I thought would wrap up our time together. One reason is because it speaks to the very soul of this show, but also I think it says a lot about you. And I, I'm going to finish with that. But before we do, I'd love you to share where Big Think is now, because you mentioned this in the book as well. You mentioned that people don't ask this, what's the vision, etc. You, you had a successful exit because this was on your mind for a long period of time. And we will mention as well, I'm going to definitely mention for you bigthink.com because you paid 35k for the damn thing. So I'll mention it, right? So where can people find out you now and what's happening with Big Think? Where are you now in your life with regards to this baby that you rose? Thank you so much. So we did have a successful exit um, at the end of 2020. It was bought by a company called Freethink, which has no connection to us, interestingly enough. Uh, but Big Think is still alive and well. It's in great hands. Um, Peter and I consulted with them to kind of transition it for a few months or four months after it was acquired. I think they're doing great things with it, and it will be um, intertwined with, with Freethink. So freethink.com, bigthink.com will still be a standalone 
entity and you can you can check out the great work that they're doing with it there now. And for, for me, I've been doing some interesting consulting, um, uh, potentially doing some work uh, with the Pentagon, interestingly enough, um, and then looking to figure out what I'd like to invest the majority of my time in next. And I have some ideas. Um, the book came out literally right after the sale of Big Think, which I wasn't expecting. Um, and and so that's great. That's sort of been what I've been been working on. Because you, you don't mention it in the book, you see. So I had to do some extra research there. I was like, wonder what's going on now. But um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this quote that I love. But I'd love you then to close today's show with your final word of advice for all the entrepreneurs, but also the female entrepreneurs out there, all the budding digital goddesses. So here's my quote. I absolutely love this. Sometimes you got to go against the grain to grow, to put yourself in a different scenario than you have experienced before. In business or in personal matters, it's a good thing. Working new angles provides new scenarios. And those are sometimes what it takes to help you personally and the business morph to something spectacular. Change drives growth. Hard change may drive it even more. Absolutely love that, Victoria. Over to you. How do you want to close today's show? I think that's, well, I think I'd forgotten I written I had written that, but yes, I like that. You're like, damn, I'm good. I am good. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I do think that the hard things do pay off. And I think entrepreneurs are people who are risk takers. And those who want to be entrepreneurs have to understand that being an entrepreneur does require risk. Whether you succeed or fail, I think it's worth the challenge. And I would do it again in a heartbeat, despite all of the ups and downs. Um, I think it's the most satisfying journey, professional journey one can take, other than potentially being a doctor and saving lives. Author of Digital Goddess, The Unfiltered Lessons of a Female Entrepreneur, Victoria Montgomery Brown. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Aiden.